Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. On the show, Matt, how are you doing today? Good, thanks, Hadi. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been amazing having you. We've been trying to get that uh, done for quite a while. I'm excited that uh, we managed to get you on the pod. Thank you for that. Yeah, exactly. Let me start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Matt Barnett is the founder of Bonjoro, a software as a service platform that lets you send the quick personal videos to new leads and customers to stand out, build trust, and make more sales. Matt, you have so much tactics and strategies that you've shared with your audience through podcast interviews, blogs, and even your amazing newsletter. But before we dive deeper into the strategies you deployed to acquire your customer base, take us back to the founding aha moment. Would you like the founding aha moment of the company or the first time you got customers? Your uh, founding aha moment of your company. Yeah, so we ran an agency based out of Australia, clients in London, New York, and Paris. I'm from the UK myself, originally. So we would have leads come in all times of the day. But Australia, although it's a great place to live, it's not ideal for business hours because generally when everyone else is awake in the States and the UK, then everyone's asleep here. So we would do drip email campaigns to these leads that came in, but these weren't great at converting for us. So the thing that really worked for us is always getting in meetings. Again, this was um, enterprise sales and, and agency sales. So we thought, how can we bring some of that to the kind of email process when we're asleep? So what we started doing is recording a video for every single lead that signed up to our funnel. So in the morning, I would take a boat that would go past the Opera House here in Sydney. And as we went past, I would have a list of everyone who signed up. And we'd also use some data tools to try and pull information about them. So for instance, I'd see that John Archer, the head of creative at uh, Heineken's, you know, uh, got in touch. And I'd put my, my phone and do a video and say, hey, John, saw you signed up. See with Heineken, we've already worked with Budweiser, Pernod Ricard. This is what we do, et cetera, et cetera. Look, obviously, I'm, I'm in Australia. I'm not in London, but I will be over in six weeks. Would love to come in and uh, meet the team and show you what we do. We would then edit that video. We would put it into an email and send it off. And the, the first piece of communication John would ever get would be this video from this guy in Australia on a boat. And we tripled our response rates. Everyone would reply and they would say, you know, don't quite understood what you said because it was too windy, but love to have you come in when you're back in the UK. Absolutely come pitch us. And we won three times our business off it. Off the back of that, long story short, one client asked if they could use this video email tool. So we built a prototype they could use themselves over a weekend. They started playing with it. When they started sending out video messages to their clients, some of their clients came in and signed up. And then they started using it and some of their clients signed up. And so, you know, very quickly we realized that there was something here. And then the rest is history. It just started to grow itself from that point forward. Amazing, amazing. That's a great story, Matt. One of the many advisors of Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, is to do things that don't scale early in the life cycle of a startup. What non-scalable tactics did you implement early on to acquire your first users? We went out to events. So we went out to events here in Australia. We went out and, and met with lots of... So again, like all of us have previous histories, previous work places. So we went back to previous clients and we showed them this new tool and we said, hey, what do you think about this? And we spoke to 
as many different types of potential users and as, and as many different industries as we could. So we went to enterprise. We did trials with PwC and, and Ernst and Young. We went to charities. We went to small, medium businesses. We went to SaaS companies, startups. We went to educations. We went to universities. And we just did this on feet, went out to the city, met people, networked, went to events. And through that, we found our initial customers, people who were willing to give it a go, people who were willing to try out a beta product, which is, which is a very basic product. We even met some of our first investors who were early clients through that process. But essentially, just use your networks and go and talk to as many people as you can about what it is you do to try and find out really like who is the ideal customer for you as soon as possible. That's great advice. I mean, early on, when you do these type of strategies that are not scalable, how do you keep yourself motivated? Because a lot of people shrug you off. You go to these events, you demo, you give your business cards, they never return your calls. And how were you able to manage getting into PwC and other big four? Because there's always gatekeepers there that prevent you from getting to your first customer. Obviously, it's a people game, right? So you have to know people who know people. So I, I, like from working in agencies, I'm very good at asking people who else they know that I should go and talk to. Not enough people do this in business, I don't think. Not enough people ask for referrals. So with PwC, I start asking around, who knows somebody who works in PwC? I got a contact. I talked to them. They were probably fairly, I don't know, probably, probably fairly junior, and they managed to get me put in because... You go in with a lot of energy and excitement. I think a lot of large companies want to work with startups, right, as well. So you have this on your side. When you're starting a new idea and it is exciting, other people get caught up in that excitement. Of course, like whatever you're doing is not right for everyone. But if you believe what you're doing is a good product and it's a good mission, then that in itself is exciting. And obviously, while you're out trying to sell, your business partners and your team are back building the products. And that's, and that's exciting, too. You will get yeses. You'll get loads of noes. It's great. It's, it's practice, right? Like you need to practice your pitch a hundred times. And by trying it with lots of different people, you will find the ones that do like it. And when they like it, that gives you all the energy you need to keep going. You know, if one in a hundred p- people absolutely love what you do, then that kind of makes your day. And then you carry on and find the next one. Amazing. Thank you for that. You know, one of your growth channels has been a YouTube video where I think you booked uh, 200 plus podcasts that drove your user base up to 40,000 users. Walk us through the key things that you did to get booked on so many podcasts. And how did you decide which channel to double down on? Obviously, getting booked on so many podcasts requires time and effort, which takes away from doing other growth levers. Yeah, and to be clear, this, this was way past our first 100 customers. This was kind of like as we grew and had a team. So the way we did this is I'd work with, with my growth team. And so they're based out of the States and they would actually do a lot of the booking for me. So initially the first podcast we ever did with people that I knew, customers we had, partners that we had, and we'd be talking and they'd be like, Hey, we have a podcast. Come on it. And so we did a few in there and they went really well. And we saw that we saw that we got some good traffic coming in. And so we're like, okay, how do we scale this up? We then I think went to, went online and started to find. Yeah, the top 50 podcasts in certain industries. So in e-commerce, in SaaS, in education. And then we started looking at which ones worked with the message that we were giving, which by this time was more around loyalty and the importance of spending time with customers, because that's what we do. And so we looked at who was talking about that and then who would make, who'd be relevant for that. And then we started to email them pictures for that. As it's one of those things that again builds momentum because the more podcasts you're on, 
people start to know your name at the end of the podcast, ask who else you should go and talk to. And it's quite easy to then get invited onto bigger and bigger shows as you start to build cadence with it as well. So, so it does have a viral nature to it. And again, like I think we're a brand that a lot of people have come across. So when you are talking to podcast hosts, a lot of people have heard the brand. That also makes it easier to get in the door. So again, like, this wasn't the first 100 people. This was later on in our growth time. But I also think podcast took off at the same time that we did it about two or three years ago. So timing is, is always a, a part here with these channels as well. In your recent newsletter, you shared things that didn't work for you, like a handwritten gifts, a LinkedIn ads, a free consultation from your mascot, which I believe is you, and then sponsoring prominent podcasts. Knowing what you know today, if you had $10,000 of a monthly marketing budget, where would you start? There's a few places that do do well. I think most businesses will find that retargeting works. So if you want to get on the ads route, the lowest hanging fruit is retargeting. Somebody visits your site and then you do ads that then touch back with that person if they haven't signed up. Generally across the board, that does work because that's because you're then marketing somebody who's already predetermined and, and understands what you do. Much better return than ads. Ads themselves, if I had 10 grand, I wouldn't put on ads. If you're a company that really knows ads really well and you have your strategy good to go, yeah, yeah sure. But if you're starting out... I wouldn't use it there. I think, so like the thing that worked for us in the early days is we did a lot of customer delight work. So we would order bear suits in bulk. We'd order 250 at a time and we send them to customers when they hit certain milestones on the platform. Um, it costs quite a bit because you have to buy the bear suit, you have to do the shipping, everything else. But that started to get people talking about us. And so what you try and do here, like the absolute win you can do is to try to start to get a bit of a viral thing going. Anyone you do that to also stays longer. They, they become more loyal. They get you on podcasts. They talk about you. Um, it doesn't cost $10,000. So it's actually like much more grassroots than that. Uh, depending on your scale, you can scale that up. I think with direct spend and marketing, the best stuff to do is to think about what you could do cheap and free because you have unlimited time. If you find something that really does work for you and you find what the one channel that works, uh, and most companies have one single channel that they really excel at. My advice is then just to invest into that channel because you understand it, you know how it works, you know where you could deploy that $10,000 to get the maximum ROI. If you happen to be an ads genius, you could probably spend $10,000 and get a great return. But most of us can't. If you happen to be a PR genius, maybe you can spend $10,000 on a piece of content and get that to work. A lot of people can't. Just think about where your skills lie. And it doesn't have to be pure marketing. Either. It could be sales. $10,000 pays for one or two salespeople plus commission, maybe that's the thing that works for you. Excellent advice. You mentioned recently that adding testimonials to your website has helped increase your conversions by around 11%. I'm not a big fan of such a gross hack, but if it's done properly, it has higher conversion. Give us your masterclass version on how should it be really done to increase conversions. So you have to have social proof for your business. And this can come in many formats, but testimonials and case studies are, are really valuable. If you don't have them, you will decrease your conversion. So I wouldn't say it's such that you have testimonials to increase your conversions. If you don't have them, you will get less people inquiring or signing up. People want to see social proof. They want to see other people work with you. They, they want to see that your business is legitimate and they want to see people like themselves. This can be done in many formats. Look, one of the ways to this is to go and collect, try and collect testimonial from every single customer you have. It doesn't matter if you have five or 50 or 50,000. This is something you should always be doing. What you want to do is the way you do this is it all comes down to questions. 
you want to formulate certain questions, you want to use a tool, you can use Bonjour. There are, there are other testimonial tools, but you want to build a set of questions and then essentially send it out to that client as part of an interview. The way that you formulate the questions dictates the kind of testimony that you will get back. So if you know that one of your strongest USPs, your unique selling propositions is around service, then you need to ask the question, how do you think our service is? And that person hopefully will talk to how great your service is. And that's the thing that you obviously want to promote. If your price is the thing that you compete on, then you need to ask the question, how does that price compare to other people in the space? And they'll, Bonjour's price is the best in the space by far. You should definitely use it. So think about what your USP is and then try and ask questions that get people to talk about that specifically so that when you share them on your site, they are talking about the thing that you know will increase your conversions. You can do open-ended. It doesn't hurt because you can also do it as a good learning practice. You can even do interviews. You can talk to customers on Zoom and you can record it and then say, hey, do you mind if I use this bit of the recording as a testimony? There are many, many different ways. If you're talking to somebody in person, yeah, and they say something great. You just say, "Hey, can I use that on the site?" And if they go, "Yep," then then there you go. So always be looking for like good feedback from customers. Obviously, when you start doing testimony and gathering feedback, you also gather back the negatives, and that's not bad too, because that's how you learn and develop as a company. But get some of the positives up on your site. Get some logos. Get some faces. Make it real, and like you will increase conversions because we need to trust people. And if you're not doing it, competitors will be. And how would you avoid, you know, you go to a lot of websites, you see these testimonials, some of them look like they're not real. How would you avoid uh, someone construing your testimonial on your website that it's not real? I think, well, first of all, make sure they are real. Don't make them fake. Go and get real testimony. If you let people write in their own words, you'll get enough variance. Like people could see that, that it's real. If you want to plug it, there are testimonial sites. So if you want to plug, plug into Trustpilot or plug into something like that, it doesn't hurt having a few negative reviews as well, right? People trust 4.5. Do they trust 5 out of 5? Maybe not. There's a bit of transparency like and trust here. Like you, you can't be perfect. Testimonials that say, hey, this is great. This could be better are also often okay because, again, they are believable. So that helps. But again, if real people give you testimonials and write them and they write at length, it's not that hard to pick out pieces that are pretty unique that people should believe. Excellent. Thank you for that. What has been the most challenging in acquiring your first 100 paying customers? Well, I think the key here is that you have an idea of who your customer is, but you're not sure who the next 100 are, I think. So with uh, like I said, with us, it depends on your product. If you have an extremely deep niche, if you have a very specialized product, speak for pharmacologists based in Texas, and that, that's obviously very, very niche. You can go and do that. Most of us don't have that. We start broader. And so take with us the Bonjour, we're like, well, anyone could use this product. Now, the reality is anyone could use it, but some people are going to get a lot more value than others. And there's also different price points and a model and a business that you, that you want to build. So we were looking at where can we get a lot of users who pay a good price point, who this delivers deep value for, and therefore we know they'll stay with us for five years plus. Trying to find that customer is hard, and you can get sidetracked by talking to the wrong customers in the early days. If you find a customer that is not the right one, and you start listening too much to them and they dictate what products and features you want to go build, you might be building the wrong products and features. So always come back to your basics and go, is this the right, like, I know they're paying us, but is, is this the right customer? Will they keep paying us? And are there a hundred thousand more or 10,000 more of them out there in the world that we can go and sell to? Because if there isn't, then then keep looking. 
Steve Jobs once said, one way to remember who you are is to remember who your heroes are. Who's your hero, Matt? Mine would be David Attenborough. <laughs> I mean, I'm English, so I think we all love him. But take a man who, you know, he's famous for his, for his wildlife presenting, didn't really start to build the BBC wildlife documentaries until he was 55. And before that, he was director of the BBC. So he had a lot of experience behind him. But the thing that he's famous for, he didn't even start until he was 55. And so when you look at how you start companies and how you start initiatives, everything you're doing today is building up to something in the future. Don't stop working. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can still make massive global change no matter what age you start. So I think it's a case of, you know, always be doing new stuff, always be trying. I mean, the guy's 96 and, and still going. It's crazy, right? And like all of us should strive to be like that. Absolutely. This is very inspiring. Very similar to Colonel Sanders of the KFC. Exactly. Um, what recent habit have you picked up? Not so recent, but I, I get up pretty early. So for me, 5 a.m. starts are, are great. I think there's a thing called the 5 a.m. club, <laughs> whether, whether you spice that or not. Um, starting early is beautiful because generally speaking, te- your team is not, not around, people are not around. So you get some time to really think and get through a lot of good creative work in the morning. It's a little bit harder when you're global, like we are, because at 5 a.m., our U.S. team is online, our U.K. team is online, so it's not quite that quiet. I'm a huge fan of getting up early. A lot of founders I know do it. A lot of engineers I know do the opposite, and they work until 3 in the morning. So it's not for everyone, but for me and for a lot of people I know, it's pretty good. If you haven't tried it, try getting up at 5 a.m. every day for two weeks and just see what happens. One last question, Matt. What's next for your startup? So we're going into the loyalty space. So we started with video messaging, which essentially helps you build more loyalty with your leads coming in, which is why it leads to higher conversions. We've built a testimonials tool to help you now use that loyalty of your customers to start to drive more traffic and better conversions on your site. And we're looking at other ways that we can help you basically increase the lifetime value and loyalty of your existing customer base versus going and focusing on new customers because it's seven times cheaper to get another dollar off an existing customer than it is to go and find a new customer which a lot of companies forget. So really our mission is all around this and how to make, how to turn your existing customers into huge advocates that drive you more traffic and stay for life. Matt, thank you for being part of our show. We wish you the best of luck with your venture. This was an amazing episode. How can people reach you? So either try it, head to bonjoro.com, B-O-N-J-R-O-J-O-R-O. Have a look, try it out. If you hop on board, one of us will send you a video. You can meet the team. If you want to hit me up, or ask me any questions, go, go to LinkedIn. If you type in Papa Bear, there's two of us. I'm the guy in the bear suit. I'm more than happy to help wherever I can. Thank you, Matt, and have a great day. No problem, Hadi. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.